Welcome to China in Context, the weekly podcast from the SOAS China Institute in London. I'm Zuri Linetsky, Research Fellow at the Eurasia Group Foundation in Washington, D.C. The Middle East is a region which is long accustomed to attention from the United States, not all of it welcome. The invasion of Iraq two decades ago has enduring consequences throughout the region. America's uncompromising support for Israel has led to an easing of regional political tensions through the Abraham Accords, but has left the citizens of Gulf countries unsatisfied. And the United States continues to wrestle with Iran over its nuclear program. Now, another country is establishing itself as a significant economic and diplomatic force in the Middle East, China. I'm pleased to welcome a specialist in the region to discuss it with us. He is Tuvia Gehring, a researcher with the Diane and Guilford Glazer Israel-China Policy Center at the Institute for National Security Studies in Tel Aviv, Israel, and a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global China Hub. Tuvia has written extensively on Beijing's growing regional role in his Substack newsletter called Discourse Power. Tuvia, thanks so much for joining me to discuss this important subject. Thank you for having me, Tuvia. So let's dive into the biggest Middle Eastern news, the rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Iran. The Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs took credit for hosting the talks between the two sides, which led to the resumption of diplomatic relations between them. What do you make of this outcome? The most notable, it's uncharted territory for Chinese diplomacy in the MENA, in the Middle East, North Africa, but in the world in general. It just never happened that China led and successfully so a mediation process. It would usually just follow. And when it followed, it was the U.S. that led. But this time, the U.S. wasn't even in the room. So that's really unique. And it also marks a breakthrough for the region after seven years of stalemate between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Uh, this could be broken tomorrow morning, but still, it could drive a positive shift for more peace and stability in the region. And uh, today, we also saw some news about Syria and Saudi Arabia uh, trying to normalize ties. So we'll see. China is the largest consumer of oil from the Middle East and natural gas, of course. To what extent are its actions in the region driven by concerns about energy security? I think they are greatly driven by energy security. It, this is like the set of priorities for China and the region. So number one is energy. And from 93, China has been a net importer of energy. And until today, it imports about 40, 50 percent of its energy from the Middle East region. With the Western sections on uh, Russia, on Iran, uh, China has more opportunities to get uh, discounted oil. We saw this, for example, with the Russia overtaking Saudi Arabia, but but still the region is very important and it will remain so in the next few decades, even through the energy transition. And as that happens, China will, is sure to lead the transition, helping the region transform to wind, solar and nuclear energy. So thinking about investments and concerns outside of energy security, uh, you've mentioned wind, solar and nuclear energy. But China is also investing heavily in the region through the BRI. How does its BRI investments affect its approach to the region and how did they inform the rapprochement? China is increasingly involved in Belt and Road Initiative uh, investments in the region over the last decade. So this year marks the 10th anniversary, right? So if we look at the sheer numbers, you see 
over the years, more countries been joining China's Belt and Road Initiative. Most recently was Syria last year. Uh, I think it's the 20th Arab country uh, to join. Uh, Iran, of course, is also part of it. Israel is not officially, but it is de facto, and uh, Turkey as well. So just looking at the numbers, according to Fudan University Green Finance and Development Center, it's a think tank there. Uh, last year, 22, Saudi Arabia was the second largest destination uh, for Belt and Road Initiative investment, I think, uh, to the tune of $6 billion. The year before that, it was Iraq, out of all countries in the world, with $10.5 billion. I don't know how much of that really materialized, but still, symbolically, it means a lot. And... Yeah, the, just the more uh, you go over the years, you see China's uh, investment uh, increases. I think now it's about a quarter uh, of its BRI investments are in the Middle East. You've mentioned BRI and Chinese investments in the Middle East. So let's think a little bit more about Iran, which kind of straddles the border between the Middle East and Asia. In terms of Iran, Iran Xi Jinping has visited Tehran and seems to be on very good terms with its leaders. Yet ideologically, an Islamic republic like Iran seems very far apart from China, a country which is in theory socialist and atheist. What sustains the relationship? Yeah, that's true. Uh, there's a idiom in Chinese that goes "tong chuang imang." It means uh, strange bedfellows, basically same bed, different dreams, and they couldn't be more different when you look at it on a surface. But still, both countries see a lot of opportunities in the other, even before we factor in the U.S. Uh, and geopolitical factors, which are also important. Uh, but let's take China. Even before energy, trade was one of the biggest factors that interest uh, Iran or China. Before the Trump administration, maximum pressure, uh, it was trade that actually led the bilateral relations uh, around $37 billion in 2018. Um, of course, it has one of the largest energy deposits in the world. It has a huge population, relatively uh, educated, 85 million people, strong industrial base, a very strong religious and cultural Shia influence all over the region, a network of armed proxies, and untapped potential because it was disconnected from the entire global economy for so long. So China being the good cop, uh, it can come in and invest and be welcome. And of course, you also have, uh, to a lesser extent, civilizational ties, as they call them, between the Chinese and the Persian uh, going back centuries. But I think now, uh, coming back to the geopolitical factor, and that's also what Iran sees in China, is they are both vehemently and increasingly anti-American, anti-Western. Uh, Iran is a staunch anti-American force in the region that pins down American forces uh, and makes them less concentrated on in the Pacific, in China, uh, both uh, countries and their leaders specifically have a predilection for authoritarianism and suppressing minorities and the absolute authority and dominance of the sovereign nation over individual rights. And uh, for Iran, on the other hand, you see also many opportunities. So they see trade, they see an oil market, a good customer, investment, and most importantly, it does not interfere in their internal affairs. Uh, it only requests that you come, you support their core interests, um, for example, on Xinjiang Muslim and their repression. But, you know, you've got your own 85 million Muslims to take care of um, and not the 10 million Muslims in Xinjiang. So let's turn our attention into the other side of this diplomatic thaw, Saudi Arabia. 
In my personal view, the U.S. has turned somewhat of a blind eye to the pernicious actions of the Saudi Arabian monarchy because of its need for Saudi oil. For example, you could make a compelling argument, or I would make a compelling argument, that Saudi elite leaders have not really been held accountable for the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, or for arming or fighting the brutal war in Yemen. So what's China's position on Saudi Arabia? China's position on Saudi Arabia is, of course, different, and they try to highlight it. For one, they didn't criticize the Khashoggi killing. And they were very circumspect about Yemen, as they are, for example, now to a much, much lesser extent on Ukraine, the kind of new, neutral position. And they also do not interfere in internal affairs and they not lecture or patronize, as they allege that the U.S. does. You see the, the difference between the American and Chinese approach. And if you put yourself in Saudi eyes, they see, on the one hand, stability because Xi Jinping, they've been dealing with him for the last decade and for the next five years at least. And on the other hand, you have this alternating regime in the U.S. For one, you have Trump and he's a you know, more favorable approach to authoritarian and, and uh, human rights violations. And then you have Biden with their human rights oriented foreign policy. So turning our attention to another part of the Middle East, you're based in Jerusalem. How would you characterize China's position on the Israel-Palestinian conflict? And does it potentially have a, a viable alternative, a la its diplomatic work between Saudi and Iran, for achieving uh, a two-state solution? After the recent breakthrough between Iran and Saudi Arabia, you had some Chinese analysts, and I think even diplomats, suggested that this could pave the way for a Chinese-mediated Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But for the second time, I encourage you not to hold your breath, because this is just a completely different situation. China is completely disinterested with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It does provide the lip service for the Palestinians, because this is an issue that is on high international consensus. So this means it's very easy for China to support the Palestinians without actually providing any help or aid of any kind, and while lambasting Israel. But uh, in their mind, they are able to make kind of a separation between the political and economic affairs uh, in the Israeli sense. And that's why the relationship with Israel is relatively friendly when it's on bilateral standing. But internationally, they uh, are throwing Israel under the bus all the time, including recently. But China has absolutely zero intention to mediate because the conditions in the on the ground are not viable for mediating in any way. China has nothing to gain from it. And Israel does not support Chinese mediation because it prefers the Americans and the Palestinians. They don't necessarily prefer Chinese mediation, even despite the dislike for the Americans, because they also don't trust the Chinese. And you can see it from the Arab Barometer survey where but Palestinian territories have the lowest support for China, around 30%. You've just brought up these issues of trust of China in kind of the Palestinian community and even within kind of the larger Middle East. My question is, the Saudi and Iranian diplomatic thaw, we don't know if it's going to hold, right? We don't know if Yemen will continue to stay as a kind of a cold conflict 
or uh, if Iran will end support to the Houthis or uh, will continue attacking Saudi Arabia. To what extent does China have the ability to enforce that agreement? And, you know, this has knock-on effects, obviously, for its ability to mediate an Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, so to what extent can we expect China to police the renewed relationship between Saudi Arabia and Iran? Yeah, so I think police is, is the key uh, word to the answer here. So uh, Chinese themselves continue to say that China will not act as the world's police. It will not supplant the U.S. in doing that. And when you look at the facts on the ground, China has absolutely zero forces mobilized here in the region. They have about a thousand uh, permanent forces in the Gulf, I think. They have a base in Djibouti, but it pales in comparison to what the U.S. has, about 40 to 60,000 deployed on rotation, have permanent fleets and air forces. And of course, they are more active on the military and security front. So to your question, China made no commitments or assurances, at least on paper, during the trilateral uh, statement with uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran. And uh, for a good cause, because people do not expect it to really enforce this agreement. What's going to happen if the very likely situation where Iran or Saudi Arabia violate uh, this peace agreement tomorrow? China does have some carrots it can prevent from either side from having, but it will continue to import oil from both. It will continue to invest in both. And to be frank, it doesn't really care about the death of a few Yemens or for the sake of the argument, Jews or Arabs or the Palestinians, as long as the greater peace is maintained. And it will most likely just blame the U.S. for the resulting situation and let the U.S., the same U.S., deal with the security issue while it stands on the sunlight and uh, heckles it. China and Russia seeing the United States or the U.S.-led West as hegemonic, as unfair and unjust, and they are trying to shift the balance to a more natural position. And uh, the cynics will say that xenocentric uh, global order. Well, thank you so much for your answers, Tuvia. That was Tuvia Gehring, a researcher with the Diane and Guilford Glazer Israel-China Policy Center at the Institute for National Security Studies in Tel Aviv, Israel, and a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global China Hub, speaking to us from Jerusalem. This podcast is a co-production of the Eurasia Group Foundation and the SOAS China Institute in London. You can learn more about the Eurasia Group Foundation at egfound.org, and you can find out more about SOAS at soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here at the China in Context podcast team. Thank you.